Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the Unpoly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. On the pod this week, the provincial government unveils its long-term strategy for long-term care. The Green Party of Ontario has come out with its Roadmap to Net Zero Climate Plan, calling it the most ambitious, doable plan ever produced in Canada. And the federal cabinet has been struck. We'll highlight the Ontario angle on that. It's Tuesday, November 2nd, 2021, so let's get to it. JMM, anyone who's followed the COVID-19 story in Ontario over the past 19 months will know that long-term care homes have suffered a seriously disproportionate share of the illnesses and deaths from this coronavirus. Things got so desperate a while back, the province even called in the Canadian forces to help and then investigate. I'm sure everyone remembers that. And there's been another independent panel report come out after that as well, recommending steps the province should take to clean this all up. Okay, all of that having been said, last week the provincial government unveiled its strategy to make long-term care homes safer. And why don't you run us through some of the highlights of that? Uh, last week, Minister of Long-Term Care Rod Phillips introduced Bill 37 into the legislature. This is the uh, Providing More Care, Protecting Seniors, and Building More Beds Act. Uh, you got to love those <laughs> run-on bill titles. Uh, this bill includes um, a, a fundamental principle of interpretation, which you don't always see in legislation, and I think it's actually worth quoting here. Uh, the bill says, a long-term care home is primarily the home of its residents and is to be operated so that it is a place where they may live with dignity and in security, safety, and comfort. So that's, you know, the the hope is that everything in the law will be interpreted with that as a, a guiding principle. Uh, to that end, the government is making a bunch of reforms to the long-term care sector. Uh, they have established in law, or rather you know, formally we should say that this bill, when passed, will establish in law uh, the commitment to four hours of direct care per resident per day by March 31st, 2025. So after the next election and, and well into the next uh, government's tenure. Uh, the bill increases the fines under provincial law uh, up to $1 million for corporations and up to $400,000 for individuals who break uh, provincial rules. It also would give the minister the power to suspend a long-term care home's license uh, or appoint a provincial supervisor in much the same way that uh, when uh, a school board starts to get nutty in Ontario, uh, the minister of education can appoint a supervisor. Uh, at the same time, the government is increasing the number of inspectors and is is returning to more comprehensive inspections the government had actually uh, abandoned just prior to the pandemic. Now, I can imagine the government uh, bringing that in and then the opposition responding by saying, March 2025, before we get the four hours of hands-on care per day, that's kind of a long time. A million dollar fines and 400000 for individuals sounds like a lot, but probably isn't when you consider the deep pockets these organizations have. Uh, what was the immediate feedback you got from opposition parties? Oh, I, uniformly negative. Uh, I, I believe uh, Mike Schreiner referred to it as a, a Band-Aid solution. Uh, the NDP deputy leader, Sarah Singh, uh, referred to it as a, a disappointment. Um, the the opposition party just really saying that it, it was a, a, a real missed opportunity. 
Well, we know as well that the opposition parties would want to, if they were in charge, integrate long-term care homes into Medicare and remove profit-making participants from the private sector in this field altogether. Uh, I guess we can say it's no surprise here that a progressive conservative government declined to take that step. Exactly. Uh, not at all surprising. Uh, many of the worst horror stories in uh, Ontario's long-term care sector uh, during the pandemic happened specifically in privately owned long-term care homes, but there were certainly difficulties in the not-for-profit sector as well. Uh, and, you know, the government's position is basically that these are real physical assets, the buildings, the land, uh, the the equipment in these long-term care homes that costs real money, uh, billions upon billions of dollars to uh, nationalize that and uh, you know compensate the former owners. And that's just not the best use of taxpayers' dollars right now. That is the government's position anyway. There were some other ideas that were being kicked around, like allowing for-profit companies to build the long-term care homes but not operate them. The operations would be turned over to nonprofits or, or municipalities. Uh, but the government has, in this case, opted for uh, more modest changes than wholesale nationalization. Now, I did hear the Minister for Long-Term Care, Rod Phillips, say there's something like 10% of Ontario's frail elderly in long-term care homes, while the rest are still living in their own homes and presumably having either they're healthy enough to have just family or friends help out, or maybe they need no help, or maybe they, you know, they have PSWs, personal support workers come in during the week to make their lives a little more livable. That is presumably the best long-term solution here, is it not? Yeah, it, it certainly seems that way. Uh, you and I are uh, lay experts in this topic, as so many provincial reporters have had to become. Um, you know, even with all of the new beds, the new long-term care homes that the government uh, wants to build and is announcing new ones every week, it's just going to be extremely difficult to uh, build enough beds to uh, dig out of this uh, situation. First of all, we have an enormous backlog uh, already, and of course the the province's population is getting older every single day, and it's just going to be very, very difficult to keep up with. Uh, one of the phrases you'll hear periodically is somebody will refer to it like a gray tsunami, uh, and that is just the the aging of the population that is coming our way. Uh, you know, the best option, arguably, the, the certainly the option that uh, long-term care residents and other patients say they want the most is to live in their own homes as long as they can. Uh, that will presumably require a, a bigger commitment to getting those PSWs uh, graduating from colleges and funding the home care sector. Well, and one wonders whether you can actually attract more people into this field when the province has already said that it wants to cap all future public sector salary increases to 1% annually. That's going to make it trickier, I presume. Uh, yes, trickier is the right word. Uh, you know, People don't go into uh, that line of work to get rich any more than lots of people do, any more than reporters do. Uh, but, you know, they don't want to be working their fingers to the bone to, to earn, you know, worse wages than they could do in lots of other private sector jobs. And yet I heard the Minister of Long-Term Care interviewed on CBC Radio this past week, and when he was asked... Might the government consider repealing the bill that caps salary increases to 1% annually? The answer came back, no. 
<laughs> yes, the, the you know the government sees this as you know a, a cornerstone of the the long term fiscal uh, balance for the province. And as a full disclosure to our listeners, of course, you know I, I always like to throw in these things. You know, this law does affect TVO as well, and so uh, you know our listeners can take that as they will. Uh, but no, the government is 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 sticking with its um, uh, compensation constraints. Let's switch from long-term care to the environment. The Ontario Greens made a major announcement last week, and it's all about getting to net zero carbon emissions starting next year to the end of this century. Mr. McGrath, some of the highlights, please, if you would. Uh, The big one is, uh, you know, trying to shift Ontario's consumption of fossil fuels to clean electricity. Uh, now, probably don't need to tell our listeners, but just as a reminder, of course, uh, we don't burn coal for electricity in Ontario anymore, and we don't really burn that much natural gas uh, either, though th- that fraction will grow somewhat in the next few years. Uh, most of our electricity is generated with uh, nuclear and uh, hydroelectricity with some wind and solar tossed in there. Uh, so generally, we have a very clean grid, certainly by North American standards. Um, The fossil fuels that Mike Schreiner and the Green Party are talking about replacing here are the gas in people's cars, you know, shifting people from gas-powered cars to electric cars, uh, shifting uh, home heating from natural gas to uh, electricity, uh, wherever possible. So that's a big one. Uh, they want to make this big shift in an um, equitable way. Uh, they, they want to address uh, what is variously called environmental racism or, or climate racism uh, because they don't want uh, the... Uh, marginalized people, black, indigenous people of color uh, to be uh, adversely affected by these kinds of changes. And of course, these groups are already adversely affected by um, environmental injustice broadly. Uh, $1 billion for indigenous-led conservation efforts. Uh, They want to make transit more affordable, make electric vehicles more affordable for everyone. Um, And that's, you know, just some of the highlights from the, the plan that was released last week. The climate racism part of that was most interesting because uh, I guess if you put forward a program that says if you spend ten or twenty thousand dollars fixing up your home, we'll give you a tax credit if you make that home more environmentally smart. Of course, it requires you to be able to have the income to spend ten or twenty thousand dollars fixing up your home in the first place. So the climate racism angle was most interesting in that. How about uh, anything in this focusing on post-secondary? What was there? Uh, one of the big uh, pushes that the uh, Green Party is making here is saying that you know this is uh, not just an environmental plan, this is a jobs plan. And so they are looking for uh, 60,000 young people to get a, a year of free college tuition uh, in things like the trades and you know they expect to to create a lot of building jobs with things like uh, you know retrofitting existing buildings and building new more sustainable buildings uh that's that's a big big part of this plan i know mike schreiner the green party leader has often decried the fact that taxpayers and electricity users are essentially two different pockets of the same person (laughs) but that taxpayers are spending six billion dollars out of their taxpaying pocket every year to subsidize electricity users uh, who take the money out of their electricity using pocket. Uh, what does he propose to do about that? Ah, the, the, the clarity of Ontario's electricity accounting. Uh, <laughs> Mike Schreiner is proposing that uh, instead of, you know, just 
blanket subsidizing electricity use, they would shift a lot of that. Uh, there would still be some subsidies for people uh, on low incomes so and, and to, to address what is sort of broadly called energy poverty, people who are being really uh, harmed by high electricity prices. Uh, but, you know, the, the Greens have historically also, and in and, and particular, we could say uh, the deputy leader, uh, Diane Sachs, when she was environmental commissioner, uh, was, was very clear on the point that, you know, as you subsidize power rates the way that Ontario does, uh, to a large extent, you are undermining climate action. Uh, it, it encourages people to use more power. Uh, so the Greens would redirect a lot of that money into, as we mentioned, retrofitting homes and buildings so that they are more sustainable and, you know, lower people's hydro bills by using less electricity. And what about taxation? Uh, well, one of the big ones is uh, they are proposing to bring a carbon tax to Ontario instead of simply adopting the the federal one, which is in place now because Ontario hasn't adopted a carbon price. Uh, the Greens are proposing to increase it much, much faster than I think any Canadian jurisdiction, uh, maybe most jurisdictions in the world. I, I haven't been able to do a full study of that, uh, but but they would uh, see it go to $300 per ton uh, by, I believe that was 2030, 2032 maybe. Um, they're also asking the top 10% of earners to pay an extra 1% in income taxes. Uh, and uh, a, a, a an extra fee for the urban planning nerds here, uh, big box stores uh, paying a parking levy. Uh, this would help municipalities uh, you know, have a, a, a funding stream for climate adaptation uh, while also uh, discouraging the uh, provision of free parking for cars. <laughs> Let's move on to the federal scene now through an Ontario lens, of course. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau unveiled his new cabinet last week, and there are 39 members in the cabinet in total. 16 are from the province of Ontario. That's about 41%, which is about what Ontario's percentage of the Canadian population is. Maybe a little on the high side, but you got to remember that there are 77 Liberal MPs in Ontario, so lots of members to choose from when you're putting together a cabinet. The biggest job is still Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister, and it is still held by Christian Freeland from University Rosedale in downtown Toronto. There are three new cabinet ministers from Ontario. Marcy Ian from Toronto Centre, who's got the women and gender equality and youth portfolios. Helena Jasek from Markham Stouffville, who's responsible for the Economic Development Agency in Southern Ontario, or as John Michael McGrath puts it in this week's newsletter, the cutting red... What, what did you call the, it? The, the, the minister for ribbon cutting. <laughs> there you go. The minister for ribbon cutting. Right on. Uh, and finally, Kamal Kara from Brampton West, who's only 32 years old. But ironically, she's got responsibility for seniors. The biggest promotion of all, of course, of all the Ontario MPs was Anita Anand from Oakville moving to defense. First female defense minister since Kim Campbell had the job nearly 30 years ago. And of course, JMM, for every positive cabinet story, there is a heartbreaking one as well for others. And why don't you take us through some of those? Uh, several Ontario MPs uh, who we had heard whispers about maybe being promoted uh, got uh, overlooked this time around. Uh, two that we've talked about on the podcast before, Yasser Nakvi and Michael Koto, uh, were both uh, Liberal MPPs, uh, both cabinet ministers under Kathleen Wynne. Uh, they both won federal seats in the, the most recent election. Uh, neither of them were elevated to cabinet this time. 
Uh, Bardish Chagger from Waterloo, who is only 41, uh, was dropped after being in cabinet for six years. Uh, she was Minister of Diversity, Inclusion, and Youth. Uh, no apparent reason uh, given for her being dropped. Uh, certainly not a case like Mark Garneau, who you know, is in his 70s. There's talk of him maybe getting an ambassadorial job. So it's it's certainly unusual to see, uh, I mean, it would be unusual to see uh, an MP from the sort of Kitchener-Waterloo area dropped to begin with. The other details about Bardish Jagger's case, we are, I, I think you could call that curious. Hmm. Um, those are some of the big ones. <laughs> I also I must say I found it curious that neither Yasser Nakvi nor Michael Koto got into cabinet, in part because they do seem to check off a lot of boxes. Uh, first and foremost, uh, they have experience. There are people who got into this cabinet shuffle who have no experience in cabinet anywhere. Um, you know, Nakvi and Koto both had experience in liberal governments in the province of Ontario and had some pretty heavy files. Uh, Nakvi uh, was attorney general. Michael Koto had the autism file, which you know was a tough one and uh, also was in charge of getting the Pan Am Games up and rolling, which were quite a good success. So uh, they both uh, got well noticed for those um, for those portfolios and yet overlooked this time. Uh, they also have, uh, you know, Prime Minister Trudeau has said he wants a cabinet that looks like the country. They are both men of color, as it were. Uh, Nakvi originally from South Asia. Michael Koto is black. Um, but that didn't get them in either. So, um, you know, a bit of a surprise there, uh, as I was taking notes anyway. I did also, since you have uh, uh, already referenced our newsletter, uh, I did also want to mention a, a point you make in the newsletter about, you know, I, I don't think we know yet whether uh, Justin Trudeau is uh, going to uh, run in the next election whenever that is held. I think a lot of people are assuming he will. He has said he will, but politicians always say that. Um, but, you know, a point you raised about, you know, the, the prime minister has to be thinking, uh, if not for the immediately next election. Certainly for the one after that, he has to be thinking about the long-term future of the Liberal Party. There will be a time when the leader of the Liberal Party is not named Justin Trudeau, and he needs to think about who that's going to be. Uh, and, uh, you know, your point about uh, elevating Anita Anand and the prominence that, of course, Christopher Freeland already has, um, uh, I think that's, a, you know, a good point that he seems to be setting up. Certainly, you know, nobody can guarantee the future, uh, but he's making sure that at least some of his potential successors uh, could be women next time. Indeed. Now, one last item here, and, you know, I, I, I appreciate that this is a bit of a pet peeve of mine and not everybody's <laughs> going to care about this, but I do sometimes find it amusing, some of the language used in the fundraising e-blasts that the party send out. And here's one that came out from the Ontario PC party. I guess it went out Halloween night. <laughs> and it starts with, do you know what's scary? And then the copy goes on to say, the prospect of a liberal government at Queen's Park. Time and time again, Stephen Del Duca has shown he would simply be another Kathleen Wynne. Just last week, he admitted, quote, he was part of the problem. Let's prepare for 2022 and ensure the voters of Ontario aren't tricked by the same old liberals. And then, of course, there's a button you can click on to give them money. Um, <laughs> I don't know. What do you think about all this? Uh, I mean, it's I guess it's worth telling people that you know the re the other reason you get a email like this on the 31st of the month is because there are you know financial reporting deadlines that are involved and so you there's a totally sort of mundane reason to get an email like this and they happen to have just sort of halloweened it up um i didn't get any <laughs> chocolate or other candies for having received this email i feel kind of let down by that <laughs> 
I'm so sorry to hear that. You deserved better, John Michael. <laughs> well, I'm just going to steal some from my kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have that for you immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We always like to know what you think, what you liked, what you didn't, and help make this podcast a little bit better. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here now, my quote of the week, and John Michael. Over the years, we have heard a lot of clips from a lot of politicians talking about a lot of different things in this space. But you know who we've never heard a politician refer to at a press conference before? Who's that, Steve? Well, if you listen very carefully to Mike Schreiner, he will answer a question from Jeff Gray of The Globe and Mail. Jeff is asking the Green Party leader why the PCs are still leading in the polls if their environmental record is so horrible. What does that say, that Ontarians still, uh, more Ontarians pick them to be uh, in power despite all that? Uh, that record well first of all is the first uh, questioner mr pakin always reminds people when it comes to polls they're a snapshot of what people thought yesterday not what they're going to think in june uh and so there's a lot that can change in politics in a week let alone eight months that's green party leader mike schreiner quoting some obscure journalist on the importance or not of public opinion polls seven months before an election like Facebook, that was very meta now. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Uh, my quote of the week comes from the Prime Minister this time. Uh, we talked a bit about the Green Party's climate plan this week, and it was timed to coincide with the start of the latest UN conference on climate change in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau is there this week, and uh, here's a snippet of what he said on Monday. We must work together to ensure it is no longer free to pollute anywhere in the world. That means establishing a shared minimum standard for pricing pollution. That's Prime Minister Justin Trudeau pitching a global minimum carbon tax to the countries of the world uh, in much the same way his government brought a minimum carbon tax uh, to the provinces here in Canada. You know what they say, Steve, the world needs more Canada. Uh, does the world really say that or do we just say that? We say it a lot and we, I think it just echoes. <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. Well, that's this week's episode of the On Poly podcast. It was produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Carla Lucetta, Jonathan Hallowell, and also Albert Wisco this week. And let's say hello again to Nikki Ashworth and hope that she continues to get better. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. Stay safe, Steve.